I think today we can say with credibility that we have kept 1.5 degrees within reach, but its pulse is weak. Welcome to Radio Davos, the podcast from the World Economic Forum that looks at the biggest challenges and how we might solve them. On this episode, did COP26 succeed in pulling humanity back from the brink of climate catastrophe? Or was the Glasgow summit just more of the same old blah, blah, blah? Let us be clear, we do not need to face down, but to face out coal and fossil fuel subsidies. The president of the COP apologised for the way the summit's main text was watered down at the very last minute. May I just say to all uh, delegates, um, I apologise for the way this process has unfolded um, and uh, I'm deeply sorry. But at least the summit didn't crash and burn. It's also vital that we um, protect this package. So what was achieved? I talked to Time's senior correspondent in charge of climate change coverage and we asked, was COP26 a success or a failure? Yeah, I don't think it's blah, blah, blah. Subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a rating and a review and join us on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club on Facebook. I'm Robin Pomeroy at the World Economic Forum. Hearing no objections, it is so decided. And this is Radio Davos. COP26 is over. It felt like it went on for years, but it was actually, it only ran over one day or so. And to discuss what happened there, what just happened in Glasgow, I'm joined by Justin Warland, who's in Washington, D.C. He's the senior correspondent for Time covering climate change. Justin, how are you? You know, I'm I'm fine. Thanks for having me on. Just back from from Glasgow yesterday, so uh, a bit jet lagged, but uh, but good to be back. How did you find Glasgow? I mean, just as the city. Oh, I I liked it quite a lot actually. I I thought it had a nice culture to it. People were very nice. Yeah, it was great. Some U.S. media were in Edinburgh. I don't know if you saw that online. Yeah, yeah, I did see the 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 infamous tweet. Uh, you know, from Edinburgh saying that that's where everyone had gathered and um, that, that was amusing. Uh, I can confirm they are two different cities, <laughs> but um, but uh, no, I was in Glasgow for, for the time, so yeah. closer I, to I, the action. I know by American standards, they're basically that's one and the same city in terms of the distance, but I can assure you by British and particularly Scottish cultural standards, they are universes apart. So Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> so Justin, let's have a look at what actually happened there at COP26 at the 26th Conference of the Parties to the UN Climate Change Convention, the first major climate summit since the Paris climate deal of six years ago. It lasted for two weeks. It ran over by a day, par for the course of this sort of event as things go well into the night and into the next morning. But at the closing plenary session, there was an unusual bit of drama. You can watch it all online and you see Alok Sharma, the British minister who chairs the summit, moving around the hall, talking to various delegates, apparently as India and China are pushing for a last minute softening of the language in the Glasgow Climate Pact about phasing out coal. And once the plenary gets underway, we hear this. This is the head of the Indian delegation, Environment Minister Bhupendra Yadav, reading out the amended text. Accelerating effort to phase down unabated coal power and phase out inefficient fossil fuel subsidies while providing targeted support to the poorest and the most vulnerable. 
I think a helicopter must have been passing overhead at that moment. Now, that may not have sounded like high drama, but the fact was this changed the wording from phasing out coal to phasing down coal. And it wasn't welcomed by a lot of countries in the hall who had believed they'd already agreed the wording and that it should be phasing out coal. This is Swiss Environment Minister Simonetta Somaruga. We would like to express our profound disappointment that the language that we have agreed on, on coal and fossil fuel subsidies, has been further watered down as a result of an intransparent process. Let us be clear, we do not need to face down, but to face out coal and fossil fuel subsidies. And as he picked up the gavel to pass the, what will become the Glasgow Climate Pact, Alok Sharma looked to be holding back tears and apologised for the weakened wording and the way it had been slotted into the pact at the last minute. But he said at least this meant that COP26 could end with some kind of deal rather than none at all. Alok Sharma. May I just say to all uh, delegates, um, I apologise for the way this process has unfolded um, and uh, I'm deeply sorry. I also understand the, the deep disappointment but I think, as you have noted, it's also vital that we um, protect this package. Genuine drama, genuine emotion at the COP. Well worth a watch if anyone hasn't seen it. It's on the UN Climate Change channel on YouTube. But Justin, you were there. How important was the coal issue in the overall Glasgow Climate Pact? Yeah, well, I mean, it, I think there were a, a number of ways this sort of represented a, a key moment, right? So, uh, you know, we heard the the Swiss delegation and, and part of their complaint was sort of a, a process question. Why at the last minute did India get the ability, have the ability to shape the text uh, when others uh, weren't allowed to? And I think that fits to a bigger critique about, you know, who really had power and authority to shape this conversation. And it was the big, the big countries, the big players. And then, of course, this is the central question of, of this year uh, in some ways. And this COP is about consigning coal to history, right? To, you know, getting rid of this, pushing out this, this really uh, polluting fossil fuel. And so we get this moment here where it seemed like the language was going to be very strong about phasing out, and it ended up being about phasing down. And so it sort of reflects, I think, the bigger conversation around this COP, which is that, you know, it, it moved the ball forward, but it didn't move it uh, far enough forward, I think is what a lot of people would say. Activist groups such as Greenpeace obviously were disappointed at this. I mean, a lot of people in that hall were disappointed by it. However, they did say, Jennifer Morgan of Greenpeace, whom we interviewed for a, um, a preview of the COP26. She seemed to be saying that this is a landmark actually, though, to get coal mentioned by name. I mean, there's an incredible amount of coyness over the years about even mentioning fossil fuels and to actually pluck one out and say, this fuel is a problem. It's causing the problem. So perhaps that, that will be seen as one of the kind of landmark moments of Glasgow, do you think? Yeah, I, I absolutely. I mean, it's it's pretty remarkable when you think about, you know, obviously the role that fossil fuels play in uh, in climate change and causing climate change, and the fact that uh, under this 
UNFCCC, this COP process, fossil fuels have never been named directly. And so to name them, to say explicitly, we need to phase down uh, unabated coal, we need to phase out inefficient fossil fuel subsidies, that's that's a pretty big deal. And, and I think it's one thing that, you know, a lot of times people say, well, it's just a bunch of talk. But, you know, I, I look back to the Paris talks and the role uh, that, you know, some small vulnerable countries had putting in 1.5 as the target for emissions reduction when previously the conversation had been around two degrees and how that totally changed things. I mean, you couldn't have seen it at the time, uh, but then we go, you know, six years later and that totally changed the conversation. And so, you know, I think this mention of fossil fuels, we'll see, but uh, it, it could have implications that maybe aren't clear at the moment. Well, talking of 1.5, let's hear another clip from Alok Sharma who's the British minister who chaired this meeting. The 1.5, what we mean by that is 1.5 degrees global average temperatures, 1.5 degrees Celsius warmer than they were in pre-industrial times. We're already at 1.1 warming. Anything above 1.5 is going to cause some pretty disastrous, we've already seen some terrible extreme weather everywhere in the world, but beyond 1.5 is considered a point where things get extremely serious. And this, I mean, did, before we go to Alok Sharma, did, did you, do you have a, a sense of, the, I've seen a few numbers batted around as to where, where we're at, where Glasgow will bring us. What, what's your assessment on how close to 1.5 we can get? Right. So there are uh, a number of different numbers, but so in the middle of the, the of COP26, in the middle, middle of the conference, uh, Climate Action Tracker, which is uh, this uh, group that produces research and modeling, found that with the current policies, you know, policies that are actually underway or in route to be implemented, we're at about 2.7 degrees of warming, right? So this is way over that 1.5 degree level. Then if you look at you know, commitments to 2030, commitments that are considered a little bit more believable because they're near term, uh, you can bring that number down to uh, 2.4, you know, so closer, but but still far off. And then if you look at the long term commitments and then sort of extrapolate, so what does it mean if uh, countries really commit to net zero by 2050, 2060, et cetera, uh, that number brings it down to 1.8. But there's a huge gap between the policies you know, obviously, there's a huge gap between the policies that are actually being implemented and the sort of promises without any sort of real detail. And so, you know, where are we between 1.8 and 2.7? I mean, I think realistically closer to 2.7, but hard to know exactly. So ahead of COP26, Antonio Guterres, the head of the United Nations, I think he said 1.5 ambition was on life support. This is Alok Sharma, his very closing remarks, the, the chairman of the meeting on 1.5. I think today we can say with credibility that we have kept 1.5 degrees within reach, but its pulse is weak. History has been made here in Glasgow. And what we now need to ensure that the next chapter charts the success of the commitments that we have solemnly made together in the Glasgow Climate Pact. Thank you. Alex Sharma, continuing the life support 
metaphor for the 1.5 degree global warming uh, ambition. Let's move away from coal for a second. Let's move on to another perhaps key element of what was agreed in that Glasgow Pact, carbon trading rules. There's a huge spectrum of opinions when it comes to emissions trading, isn't there? From environmental groups such as Greenpeace, very, very sceptical of this idea of paying someone else to do your dirty work for you or or your clean work for you in this case, through to people, certainly a lot of work that's done at the World Economic Forum, working with companies who say they are investing in projects that are restoring nature for very often projects that wouldn't otherwise get funded, but for this and projects that will suck carbon out of the air. And between the extremes of people who think this is what will save the climate and those who think this is a total ripoff. There's a spectrum of opinions. And I think a lot of it comes down to how clear the rules are, whether what you're doing is legitimate, whether it's in additional to things that would be happening anyway, whether there are big loopholes. If those can be closed, then the supporters of this kind of thing are going to be satisfied that this is the right thing to do. And this is a major part of the talks at COP26 was the rules about emissions trading. Do you think the work they've done on, on emissions trading rules have actually, did this pay off? Did, did Glasgow deliver, do you think? The big thing I would flag, I guess, would be the double counting, uh, you know, creating a, uh, a system that prevents countries from essentially, you know, a credit counting in the place where it was created, where the, uh, you know, the offset was actually happening, where the, where the sucking of carbon out of the atmosphere was actually happening, and the place that buys it, right? This was one big concern. And so they managed to sort of thread a needle uh, and allow countries to essentially determine whether that offset was going to count there or in the place that buys it. So that was one big compromise. There was a compromise on carrying over some of those credits that exist before this regime. And so how will that, you know, and, and all of this, as you alluded to, is very complicated. And so I don't want to go too much into the weeds of it, but there were a lot of compromises that I think for the environmental community and a lot of the business community that cares about this in a credible way, I think they were satisfied by by the deal. And another element of, of Glasgow is that they're going to do it all again next year, or perhaps not all again, but the countries are going to be coming back with improved emissions pledges. What does that mean? Because these these COPs do happen every year, don't they? So why is that different from what COP27 would have been? Yeah, so these, these COPs happen every year, but they tend to, to exist on sort of a cycle where you get every five years a, a, a big COP. So, you know, whether that be Copenhagen or, or Paris or Glasgow, the Paris Agreement has a sort of language around it coming back every five years with new commitments, new and improved commitments that will improve a country's standing on, on emissions reduction. What they said in Glasgow is, actually, we are totally behind this year. We can't wait another five years. We have to come back next year with improved commitments. So countries have to come back and say, these are the additional things we can do for 2030, right, in the, in the near term to cut our emissions. I think there's a big question, at least in my mind, about whether they actually follow through. I mean, we've already seen Australia say, actually, this doesn't really apply to us, we're doing enough. And so I think, can they actually keep up the momentum to make that happen next year? We'll see. 
but at least it's framed to make Egypt, the COP in Egypt next year, another big moment where countries will actually bring concrete policies to the table. So we've mentioned coal and the mention of fossil fuels, mentioned emissions trading. We've mentioned coming back next year to increase emissions pledges. Are there any other major parts of the actual Glasgow Pact? One thing I would flag is the concerns of the vulnerable countries. These countries tried to get strong language around loss and damage, which is the idea that these countries are going to experience the worst effects, that are going to lose their land, etc., that they should be compensated uh, in some way for that loss and damage. And they tried to get really strong language. This isn't something that developed countries have uh, tried to avoid uh, really dealing with in, a, in, in, in the way that the vulnerable counterparts wanted to, uh, in large part because it opens the door to liability, et cetera. And so there was a reference to continuing that dialogue. But I think that's an area to watch because these countries are, are not going to let it go. The other thing I would reference, there's a mention of adaptation and finding a way to really gear up finance for adaptation measures in developing countries. In 2009, developed countries committed to $100 billion a year beginning in 2020 uh, and between 2020 and 25 in, in finance for developing countries. 50% of that was supposed to go to adaptation. Uh, that hasn't been met. And so these countries are, are looking for ways to really gear that up. And there's language around creating a sort of post-2025 adaptation finance that's really, really more robust uh, than, than what we've seen thus far. Beyond the Glasgow Pact itself, there were other agreements that happened more on the sidelines. Did any stand out to you as being particularly significant? On the bilateral agreement side, I would flag this US-China agreement. There are some details in there, you know, China agreeing to work on methane, creating a dialogue for emissions reductions in the 2020s, which are important details. But I think the main thing is that here were here are the two biggest emitters, the two biggest economies, which have been in conflict, you know, for the last several years, saying we're going to work together on this issue, we're going to put aside our differences for the good of addressing climate change. And I think that that was a really important moment. And I think if they can follow through on that, that will be significant. I mean, there are so many things that could be mentioned. An agreement about ending deforestation, pretty toothless, but it had more than 100 countries sign up to it. Uh, an agreement on methane emissions, uh, reducing methane emissions globally by 30% between 2020 and 2030. More than 100 countries signed up to that. GFANS, Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, 100 plus trillion dollars in uh, assets under management committing to finding ways to get to net zero. This being Radio Davos, I mentioned the First Movers Coalition comes out of a partnership between uh, the World Economic Forum and the U.S. State Department on uh, really galvanizing clean energy technology by getting companies to commit to buying it and, and creating that demand signal. There are so many important things that if followed through really would be pretty game-changing. Which does suggest then that a, a massive conference like this, one of the biggest United Nations meetings ever held in terms of the size of the thing, it does suggest perhaps that it's not just all blah, blah. Maybe there is some point in these things. I understand the sentiment behind blah, blah, blah. I also think clearly these conferences serve a purpose. I think the important thing is to have some sort of accountability, right? So, okay, great that countries committed to come back next year, you know, hold their feet to the fire to make sure they do it. Great that these financial institutions committed to net zero. 
and financing the transition, make sure they do it. These conferences totally have a point in my mind. It's, you know, incumbent upon media and uh, activists, etc., to do the work to ensure that the follow through happens. So I, I, yeah, I don't think it's blah, blah, blah. On a wider level, what do you see happening now that is going over the next few years to actually change the game and actually achieve what needs to be achieved on climate change? The COP next year will be interesting. It'll be interesting to see if countries follow through. I think I do notice a rise in uh, thinking differently about the sort of nature of the multilateral engagement, right? So from this, this sort of altruistic, like we all have to be in this together approach uh, to what, you know, we, we start talking about CBAM, the you know, carbon border adjustment mechanism in the European Union, the conversation about possibly doing that in the U.S., uh, thinking about you know ways in which countries might use trade and other sort of uh, financial incentives to really press others. Could you, in a nutshell, remind us what CBAM is, what what, what it's supposed right. to do, and how it's a it's a proposal at the moment, isn't it? Yeah. So CBAM is a is a proposal that's come out of the European Commission. CBAM stands for Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism, and essentially what it does is it creates a border uh, adjustment, a border levy uh, on products and a certain subset of high carbon industries. Uh, so if you're importing a product from a place that is really bad on uh, emissions, it's going to face a penalty, right? And so the idea is, A, that it protects European industry, they wouldn't use this framing, but that it protects European industry where they have been working on emissions reduction from being penalized and having higher cost products than products being made in places that uh, don't have the same sort of stringent regulation. And of course, the uh, corollary to that is that um, that incentivizes places that don't have strict uh, carbon regulation to, to put it in place. Um, and so it started, you know, Europe is rolling this out. There's a nascent discussion in the US about this. We've heard sort of a ministerial level comments about this in the UK. Uh, you know, it's, it's a potentially game changing discussion. Yeah, very interesting. And there'll be a meeting of the World Trade Organization in a few weeks time here in Geneva. And it's going to be interesting to see how rules like that come up against global trade rules handled by the World Trade Organization. Um, we've also done an episode on that, the potential conflicts there yeah. that are certainly not going to be resolved, you know, in the next few weeks. You know, and I asked this question to Dr. Ngozi, who is the head of the WTO, her response was, you know, if they're well, well structured, I, I don't see any reason why this wouldn't withstand WTO scrutiny. And, and that seems to be the read of of, of the, the broad read of the trade, uh, uh, you know, lawyers, et cetera. Of course, you know, if it's well-structured is a big if, right? So, right. you know. In, in a word then, success or failure for COP26? Well, I hate to break the one word thing. It's, it's, it's nuanced, right? It's both. I asked a similar question to uh, Akeem Steiner, the head of the UN Development Program, and he said something along the lines of, when we're in the, such a dire situation, like, Cops can never really be a success. <laughs> I would echo that and say it moved the ball forward, but the situation is dire, so we need to do more. Justin Warland, climate correspondent at Time, thanks very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much. It's a fun conversation. 
We've produced almost a dozen podcast episodes on climate change in and around COP26. Find them all at wef.ch slash podcast. And please subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a rating or review and join the conversation. Please leave us comments on anything you've heard on this program. You can come and talk to us about podcasts that you love on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club. Look for that on Facebook. This episode of Radio Davos was written and presented by me, Robin Pomeroy, with studio production by Gareth Nolan. We'll be back next next week but for now thanks to you for listening and goodbye